This is a Federal News Network podcast. June Gibbs Brown, one of the federal government's earliest inspectors general, retired more than 20 years ago. But her work lives on through an annual award given by the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, SIGI. This year's award went to Ruth Ann Dorrell, the regional IG for evaluations and inspections at the Department of Health and Human Services. Ms. Dorrell joins me now. Good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Good to be on. So let's talk about you here, and you are Regional Inspector General for Evaluation and Inspections. What does that mean? What region are you in, and what type of work do you do? I'm in the Dallas Regional Office, Region 6 in HHS, and we do national reviews in the evaluation shop. And so we very often sample states outside of our region, but I'm located in Dallas with a small staff there. And our evaluation shop in HHS is across the country, and we do a full range of studies regarding HHS programs. There are over 300 programs in HHS. It's a very broad portfolio. You know, CMS, of course, is the big one in terms of funding the Medicare and Medicaid, but we also, in the HHS portfolio, have CDC, FDA, NIH. The Administration for Children and Families does welfare programs, child support enforcement, Indian Health Service. So the range of our work is extensive. We'll do statistical reviews of claims analysis and more qualitative reviews of quality of care, patient safety, and so forth. And how do the regions map against the missions? Because those are all national concerns, and a lot of them are administered out of Washington. CMS is in Baltimore. So how do the regions map to what it is that HHS does with all the 50 states and territories? We're just located in other places, but we work with our Boston, New York, Philly, Atlanta, KC, San Francisco offices, sort of all of a piece. You know, Washington is the company town, but there are only about 150 of us across the country. And so we just cross-pollinate and we're as likely to be studying something in, you know, New Hampshire as we would be in New Mexico. Just over the years, I think it was maybe designed to be regionally focused. And over the years, the way healthcare is administered just didn't make sense for us to target our evaluation work. Now, our auditors and our investigators, because their work is often more specific to a particular provider, they do provide coverage for the states within their region. It makes more sense for the work that they do. And I guess in the internet age, the collaborators in fraud work across state lines and regional lines anyway. Oh, you bet. It's amazing what they do. The data analytics that we have now in the HHS OIG, it's just nuts. How in my 26 years I've been in OIG, things have progressed so much. It's so sophisticated now. Our CDO shop is cranking out numbers continually and our agents and our auditors work across the aisle, across states. The fraudsters are always moving ahead, so we're always mapping that out at the national and the local level. I guess that's the big change for IGs over those 25, 26 years you say you've been working. You had computers and email back then, but computers were mainly communication devices. Now they have become, it sounds like, central analytic tools that you need in the day-to-day work. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, we had statisticians back then who were cranking it out, and we're lucky, particularly in national programs like Medicare, we've always had pretty decent data. But each year, the data improves, and then the sophistication improves. And so the way I perceive it is, it's not that we weren't doing some of that granular work back in the day, but it's just so much easier now, programmable, so that we can focus 
our agents tell me that it's still a combination of field work and analytics. You know, you can't ever get away from that on the ground work. But I think the analytics part has just become much slicker than, you know, was quarter century ago. We're speaking with Ruth Ann Dorrell, Regional Inspector General for Evaluation and Inspections at the Department of Health and Human Services. And are there any cases over the years that stand out in your mind as to why you want to be an inspector general? Because we do national studies, our focus is more on thematic policies across the country as opposed to specific cases. But we've done a lot of work that just makes me jump out of bed in the morning. It's so gratifying. I mean, healthcare, uh, which is not all of our portfolio, but much of it, you know, is one-sixth of the economy, soon to be one-fifth. I mean, it's just a crazy interesting area and such a high impact on people's lives. I mean, I feel so fortunate in HHS that we're able to look at programs that are very central to people's quality of life. It's interesting you mentioned that about the cases. I wanted to mention that I actually knew June Gibbs-Brown. I was very fortunate. So the last five years of her career were the first five years of mine, um, 1995 to 2000. So I knew her, briefed her a number of times. I was, of course, a newbie, and she was the top of the chain. So I didn't know her intimately, but I certainly had very strong impressions of her and her leadership skills. And she was one of the first IGs, period. But she was one of the leaders in sort of linking casework to more systemic problems. Back in the day, you know, the beginning of IG offices, many of them didn't even have evaluation shops that did studies nationwide. They did casework. But June Gibbs-Brown was one of the first people who said, hey, if we can find that something's happening in Louisiana or Florida in a particular case, then chances are that that kind of thing is happening at the national level more frequently and that we need to attack it from a policy perspective and not just from a law enforcement perspective. So she was... You know, really first out of the gate there with the early idea of data analytics and taking a particular case example and applying it nationally, which is what we often do. So for you, the driving factor is maybe not necessarily putting Dr. Demento behind bars, but in yeah. affecting the way the department as a whole operates over time yes. to get better and better and in including reducing fraud and waste. Yes. And, you know, preemptive things and to be able to get national rates, you know, that's what we're always going for is what's the prominence of a problem nationally? That's what we in the evaluation shop are always hoping for. And then what policy is driving that? How can we incentivize providers more effectively to provide quality care and so forth? One of the big areas of work I've been in for now 14 years and ongoing, we've been looking at the incidence of patient harm we call them adverse events in medical care. Uh, We now have about 20 reports over the course of the years looking at that. And we've looked at how often the rate, the incidence of patient harm for Medicare beneficiaries in hospitals, nursing homes, inpatient rehab, long-term care hospitals, and so forth. We're about to go into labor and delivery for Medicaid patients. It's been a gratifying body of work because we identified through medical chart reviews, we hire all these super impressive physicians who are able to crawl all over the medical record reviews and parse out what was happening to the patient, you know, their comorbidities, their presenting condition from what may have hurt them in the provision of medical care. Could be anything, overdoses, an infection they acquired in the hospital and so forth. And we found that about a third of Medicare patients are harmed 
in the provision of healthcare. And that's way higher than other researchers had previously found. And some of those are small things like a rash on the skin or something. And some of them were events that contributed to death. And so we've spent a ton of time, a ton of my time over the last 13, 14 years has been devoted to this, chronicling the incidence of patient harm, and then what policies can be changed to ensure that that harm rate goes down. And if you add it all up, I'm guessing I know the answer to this question, but it sounds like you would recommend to a young person looking for a career that federal service and especially this type of investigative work is pretty fulfilling. Oh, yeah, we, we love it. I mean, it would be great to work for an operating division, too. You know, the people in CMS, CDC, they're actually really driving beneficiary impact. But the great thing about working for the IG's office is that we're able to take sort of that broad view we're all kind of over analyzers. And so we're able to take all the pieces. Yeah, you know, we conduct interviews, we do document reviews, we look at data and pull the story together. What's happening? You know, what can we do? HHS drives healthcare. I mean, it just does. The Medicare program is so huge. So what can we do to improve the lives of beneficiaries, to improve healthcare, to make it more affordable? I was a high school teacher before this, and that had its own rewards in terms of, you know, direct impact with kids and so forth. But this is a fantastic job for feeling like you're a part of moving the needle. Ruth Ann Dorrell is Regional Inspector General for Evaluation and Inspections at the Department of Health and Human Services. She is also the recipient of the June Gibbs-Brown Career Achievement Award given by SIGI. And I should say this is in recognition of a career infused with outstanding selfless leadership and management of innovative, groundbreaking evaluations that have improved health care for millions of Americans. That's the SIGI citation. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life and um, it's been a great run for me. 
How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. 
It's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.